Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 4th, 2016. This is episode 1724 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Thursday. It's also time for your calls. Your calls to 866-65-THINK-AGAIN, 866-65-THINK. That is the think line, because we do encourage independent thought at the Survival Podcast. So if you make that call, here's a couple things to think about. One, it's a recorded line. There, there's no, hi, this is Jack Caller. Welcome to the show. It's a podcast. It's not done live. So you can relax. If you mess up, you just hang up and call again. But to, to make your call go better and not mess up and call again like four times in a row or something like that, uh, what you can do is, number one, know what you're going to ask or the point you're going to make. Maybe write it down, and then go ahead and give details after that. If you do that, your call will go so much smoother. Number two, call from a quiet location. Number three, if you're using a cell phone, look at the bars. If there's less than two bars, go somewhere else before you make the call, because so nobody on the other end of the line is going to be able to tell you something like, hey, caller, you sound like you can't really know what you're saying, right? So they don't want to tell you that, so you won't know, so you got to make sure you have a good connection. Because I get calls like that all the time that are broken up, and I'm like, man, I kind of get the point, but not really, and I'd love to use that call. So the other rule is if you make a call and you really want an answer, and you called in, let's say, more than two, three weeks ago, and you ain't heard yourself on the air yet, call again. Maybe there was nothing wrong with your call, and uh, I, I just didn't feel like answering that question today. If you hit me with it again, maybe I will. Sometimes I'm just like... I don't want to do that today. And sometimes I go back and pull those calls out, and sometimes I don't. Squeaky, squeaky wheel gets the grease, is like they used to say in the Army. All right, before I get to your calls, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold... I go to jambullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that like, you need to get out of the dollar, they're going to burn it to the ground, it's going to be worthless tomorrow, by the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. 
We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company. When you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber. They have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. All right, next, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1724, because the episode is 1724. Alex Shrugged has two for us today at TSPWiki.com. I have the Royal Bank of Scotland and the Wonders of Overdraft Protection, and I have the Escape Artist and the Invention of Scandal Journalism. I'm going to read the second one because I have some thoughts on it that apply to Alex's very questions in his follow-up. Jack Shepard, otherwise known as Gentleman Jack, has escaped from prison four times this year alone. The fifth time is a charm, but not for Jack. After several years of successful apprenticeship to a carpenter, he was led to drink and debauchery under the misinstrations of a prostitute. Edge would be at best. He was also taught pickpocketing and highway robbery by his partner in crime, Joseph Blueskin Blake. Gentleman Jack has been on a two-year crime spree, and it is all coming to an end. Shepard has been caught dead drunk after spending time with two women of ne ne negotiable virtue. It is such a scandal that before Jack Shepard is executed, he publishes his autobiography entitled The History and Remarkable Life of John Shepard. End quote. It is probably ghostwritten by Daniel Defoe, the author of Robinson Crusoe. It sells like hotcakes, especially if the hanging government officials are dismayed by Shepard's popularity even after his death. So they ban all plays with his name, Jack Shepard, in the title. The ban will be in effect for the next 40 years. My take regarding Alex, or my take by Alex Shrug, regarding scandals making the news, this is all about ratings. So if a pretty girl is kidnapped, it is wall to wall coverage. If an ugly girl is kidnapped, there's no coverage. Why the difference? It has to do with the attitude of people consuming news, entertainment. We see the news has become entertainment, but when has it ever not been entertainment? News is an ongoing reality show. The first newspaper began as a gossip page. By the time the American Revolution, news has had become political as well. Eric Burns called it the gutter age of American journalism. What exactly is the inalienable right of the press and the Bill of Rights that was protecting 
free speech was already listed. Was it free speech in written form, especially political speech? Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Amendment 1, the Bill of Rights. Okay, so I got a couple things here. One, this is interesting because people say, Why, when I make a payment to MSB, does it say John Spirico, and you say you're Jack Spirico? Are there two different people? No, they are one person, they're me. Just like this gentleman Jack here, many people in the world who are have the given name John go by Jack. With my parents, they thought John F. Kennedy was God, so they called, and those are really my parents, it was my grandparents that felt that way, and my father was also named John, they always called him Jack, so as I grew up, I was called Jack too. But John and Jack actually are the same name, and they mean Son of Thunder. Other names that actually are of that root and the same name, just from different languages, of course, Juan uh, is the Spanish version of John, which is also Jack, and Ivan. Ivan, John, Jack, Juan are all actually the same name, called different ways. Anyway, that's not really historical, but I just thought maybe you'd like to know that. Okay, so here's my thing. What Alex is saying is if free speech is protected, why was it necessary in the Second Amendment to specifically also add, or of the press? Because wouldn't of the press be covered by free speech? In other words, I have a right to free speech. Well, maybe, maybe not. You had to be, they had to be very specific. I, I think right here, so my historical lesson for you today, instead of going into that, because that could be a determinate segment, I don't want it to be, is understanding why the Bill of Rights exists in the first place. The Bill of Rights exists in the first place because right after they got done with the Constitution, they started looking around, and people started saying, can people do this? Can people do that? Can people do this? And there were people that said, well, it doesn't, the Constitution doesn't say government can't interfere with those things. It doesn't expressly give them the power to either, but it doesn't say they can't. So what the purest constitutionalist said is, since the Constitution does not say they can, they cannot. We've seen how that's worked out. Cooler Head said, hey, if they're already talking about this crap, they're probably going to sooner or later start interfering with these rights that are already seen as inalienable that we just fought a revolution over, so maybe we should get together and, and spell out certain things government can't do. The people objecting to that said, if we do this, if we do this, what people will say later is since the government is not specifically prohibited, it infers they can. And the other side said, hey, trust me, they're going to do that anyway. We better think of all the things right now that are kind of like understood and put them into amendments as restrictions on government. And the first ten amendments didn't do anything to empower government. They restricted it further. Because everybody looked around and said the Constitution had not gone far enough. Which means every single thing that you see in the Bill of Rights was already a concern when the Bill of Rights was ratified. So that's kind of my statement. Now as far as specifically noting it as the press, well, governments have a tendency to say that certain things that are public fall under government's domain. So you might have freedom of speech to write a letter to a friend or to stand out in the street and say something or whatever, but since it's now considered being covered by the press in newspapers and things like that, it has seemed to have a certain level of authority, and it's, it's in, in the public domain. Like a util- See, they didn't have utilities yet. There was, no, there was no telegraph or telephone or electricity or whatever, but you see today how the government regulates utilities. 
kind of like an early utility, right? This network, because that's how people got their information. So that's why they had to specifically spell it out, the short version of that. Anyway, my take by Jack Spierko, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, if you like what I do, you want to support my show, become a member of the Support Brigade. If you're not already, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount. Email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line and uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll get you the discount code back. Everybody else can just go sign up. It's 50 bucks a year or just five bucks a month. Did you know you can become a member for five bucks a month and try it out and see what it's all about? You can. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members and you'll get discounts to so many things. You'll want to keep your membership if you're buying it. I mean, right now you're probably buying seeds and plants and getting ready for spring planting just in one little niche alone. I've got like four seed companies and Bob Wells Nursery that give discounts. If you're going to you know, put in a big garden this year or plant a bunch of trees, that'll pay for your membership right there. So check everything out. Just check out all the discounts we have for you. All right. Uh, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Of course, these are your calls. Let's go ahead and take your first call today, and uh, we'll do that now. Hello, Jack. This is Aaron in Rhode Island. Hey, Jack, I was listening to the uh, Peak Prosperity interview you did with uh, Chris Martinson. Uh, I thought it was a great interview. Um, one point that grabbed my attention was the... Uh, information that he shared with you about stop losses no longer um, being something that uh, you're able to place on uh, your stocks uh, come sometime in late February. Uh, that was news to you, and I was wondering if you had an opportunity to do any research into that. From what I saw, uh, that is true, um, and I was hoping you could kind of dive into a little bit about what the implications are uh, and how you see them. Uh, love the show, man. Thanks a lot. And, uh, great stuff. Talk to you soon. Bye. Um, I, I talked about this with John Pugliano and we did, we talked about it before the interview I did with him last week. And we decided not to go into it because neither one of us had really dug into it deeply yet. And we thought we could end up down a rat hole. And if I have John, we're going to have a two hour show as it is. So you could have a three or four hour show. And I just, And those are hard to do the few times that they actually get done. And I feel that it's too long for people anyway. So we did dig into it enough to determine it is true, sort of. So let me explain what a, a stop-loss order is. Uh, and it's really just an order to sell at a certain price in advance. Okay, And you can also do a, a, a buy order the same way. And I believe both of those are prevented under this new law, sort of. Okay. Now, usually they're a 30-day order. So I put in a stop-loss order. That basically means, okay, let's say I bought a stock. I bought a stock at $25 a share. It's now gone up to $35 a share. And I want to insure my profits. So I might even collar it uh, with, with uh, basically a sell order below a threshold and above a threshold. I may say if this thing comes down to $32.50, It's on its way down. That I want it sold, and just I want to capture my profits at that point. And that that's that's a, that's an insurance mechanism. So I want to I want to. And what a lot of times what I would do with individual trades is, as the stock went up, I would have a sell order that I would chase it up with. So that at any point that it came down and hit that, it would immediately tr trigger the sale, and and that would you know protect a certain portion of my profits. The other thing you might actually do is decide, okay, I've ridden this, this train long enough, but I think there's another 
bit of gain in this stock. So I can actually put in two sell orders, one above the current price and one below the current price. And that order would stand for 30 days, okay? And so if the stock went up another point, it would trigger a sale. If it dropped whatever I had said, it would sell to protect my profits or capture them. And this is a useful tool. It's not something you do all the time, but if you're smart with them, they enable you to preset certain things. So that's what a stop loss is. or a, 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 Basically, it's just an order. And you can put them in for purchases as well. I can say that if this stock hits... So you when you do an order on a stock, you say, I want to buy 100 shares of Ford. Don't do that right now. Just saying. I want to buy 100 shares of Ford... And, I, and I, I come up with a target price on them where I think it would be good if they came down to. And again, I'm specifically picking Ford because I'm not recommending that you buy them right now. Okay, So that I can give you an example that, that just has a real-world consideration to it. So Ford stock today is trading at $11.48. Let's say I, I was watching Ford I said, you know what? If this stock hits 9 bucks, I want to buy it. So in the next 30 days, if that happens, I just want to buy it. So I can put it in an order, a 30-day standing order, to buy at 9 bucks, And if it happens, I get to buy. Or I can buy Ford stock with basically a market order. I'm just willing to pay whatever the trade comes at. It's at 11.48. I put my order in. It'll, it'll trade instantly, and I might end up paying 11.47 or 11.49, but it's going to be almost exactly what it the ticker said at the moment I placed the order because it's a, a market order. If I want to be really careful, I can put in a mark order at the price the stock's at. So I could say, I don't want to get screwed here if this thing drops in the next five seconds while my trade's going through. Buy at 11.48, right? Now, you used to be able to do those sell and buy orders and put them on a 30-day stand. And what they've said now is you can do it, but only for one day after this date in February. Because there was a lot of turmoil that was created in the market where people had stop losses in, and when the market started falling, all those triggered orders happened all. Boom, 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 and it just drove it way down. Yeah, that's sort of kind of what happened, but it, it was an orchestrated collapse anyway. That's why all of it bounced back, and everybody that wanted to, at the premium elite level, bought all the premium stocks for you know 20% less than they were five seconds later. And all the rest of the stocks languished and then sort of bounced around and what have you. All right, so it's bullshit. But you can still do it. You just only can do it for a day. So I can go in this morning on, on my E-Trade account and say, okay, I have Ford at 11.47 a share. I don't. Don't buy it. I'm using a stock. I'm specifically saying not to buy it. And it's not toxic or anything. It's just it's not a buy recommendation. So I say, you know what? I, I've made some money on this stock. Let's say let's say I bought it when it was at like 9 bucks. I If this thing starts coming down today, because I have some kind of feeling, I, I want to get out, but but it may not. So I'm going to put in a sell order. I'm going to sell Ford if the price goes below 10.50, and, and ensure a little bit of my profit. There, 15 points of profit, and I just set that, and they will run just like it used to. But at the end of the day, it'll expire, and I have to replace the order the next day, and I have to replace the order the next day, and I have to replace the order the next day, and. That's how they're kind of managing this. So being a free market entrepreneur capitalist, I expect that the market will respond. So here's what I expect to happen. Companies like Scottrade, Neatrade, et cetera, this is what I expect to see. That I can go in and I will um, set my, my buy and sell orders that I want to have in place for a time. And in the morning, I'll get a text message because my order expired when the market closed. 
do you want to renew these three trades? Yes. Or three, three standing orders. Yes. Boom. Done. And technically, and technically I've renewed the order. And I have initiated the renewal of the order. And so I think this is just a technological solution. Now, one of the reasons I think John and I both think they may have done it is, is the full service stockbrokers like, no one pays attention to me anymore. So this may be good news for full service stockbrokers if technology doesn't fix the problem. But I think technology is going to fix the problem. I mean, I really think that's what's going to happen. That, that, that you'll just basically have this preset recurring order that you'll just manually, you know, eight o'clock, yes, yes, no. Send. Beep, beep, beep. Confirmation. Done. So I think technology is going to get around this one. But it is a little concerning for me. Because it's like they see another big dip coming, and they're trying to create a mitigation thing. They, they, they don't want you to get out of the way of the train. Uh, and, and, and this really affects mostly the, the mid-level day trader type people. You know? Like, like, like Carl Denninger type guys is really who's this is going to hit the hardest because they're very sophisticated about using these tools where people like me, if we have an individual stock and we've just made a decision, there's profit there to be taken. We would throw that for the next, you know, I, I, I'm not really going to be paying attention for the next two weeks. And if, if it does come down, I want it sold. Or for me, it was usually more along the lines of if it goes up above a certain point, I want it sold. And, and those both have been kind of, pin back at the ears. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Ivan calling from Afghanistan. Quick question of how would you describe and define the non-aggression principle, and how do you potentially see it playing out if a state actually adopted it? And random follow-on question unrelated to those, just because I'm curious, what is your personality type out as? Like, For example, I'm INTP. I was just curious. Thanks for all the awesome change you affect in your listenership. Take care. Bye. I'm going to start with the Myers-Briggs, a side question, because it's, it's quicker and easier to answer. And I also kind of wanted to point out that it actually is a really good idea, if you've never taken the Myers-Briggs, to go ahead and take it, because you learn a lot about yourself from it. There's a lot of people like me that actually will have some pretty dramatically different results Uh, in different versions of the test, because there are different questions. And for me, there's an awful lot of times where I'm like, because there's like four answers, I'm like, these two are both right. And uh, I, I have I have taken it enough times that I can tell you my, my average uh, rating on it is an ESTP. And Myers-Briggs, for those who don't know, it has these four factors in your life of what you're led by most. And the letters stand for words. So... As you might imagine, uh, E is for extroverted. So I'm an extroverted person. S is for sensing. So I'm led by my senses and what I can feel and actually see and, and what actually works. Thinking. I'm a thinker and I perceive. So extroverted sensing, th thinking, perceiving. That's not uh, any kind of a... Like, I'm awesome, look at me, I'm an ESTP. There's there's many different personality types, and they all have strengths and weaknesses. But I'll read a little bit about my personality type, and I think you'll see how accurate. And the reason I'm doing this isn't for me. And so if you're thinking about, is this worth my time? Listen to this and say, after listening to Jack all these years, does this sound like him or not? And maybe you'd learn something about yourself by taking this test. And I'll try to find one of the online ones that are good to put in the show notes for you today. As an ESTP, your primary mode of living is focused externally, where you take things in via your five senses in a literal, concrete fashion. Your secondary mode is internal, 
where you deal with things rationally and logically. ESTPs are outgoing, straight-shooting types, enthusiastic and excitable. ESTPs are doers who live in the world of action, blunt, straightforward risk-takers. They're willing to plunge right into things and get their hands dirty. They live in the here and now and place little importance on introspection or theory. The, the look at, the look at facts of a, They look at facts of a situation, quickly decide what should be done, execute the action, and move on to the next thing. ESTPs have an uncanny ability to perceive people's attitudes and motivations. They pick up little cues which go completely unnoticed by most other types, such as facial expression and stance. They're typically a couple of steps ahead of the person they're interacting with. ESTPs use this ability to get what they want out of a situation. Rules and laws are seen as guidelines for behavior rather than mandates. If the ESTP has decided something needs to be done, then their do-it-and-get-on-with-it attitude takes precedence over the rules. However, ESTPs tend to have their own strong belief in what's right and wrong and will doggedly stick to their principles. The rules of the establishment may hold little value to the ESTP, but their own integrity mandates that they will not, under any circumstances, do something which they feel to be wrong. You can read the rest of the ESTP if you want. I'll put a link to that. and I think you'll be like, damn, that's Jack. No wonder he's an asshole sometimes. He can't help himself. This is who he is. And you'll read your own and go, no wonder I'm an asshole sometimes. I can't help myself. That's who I am. And I I think we can learn a lot through this Myers-Briggs stuff about ourselves. And we can also learn about other people. Um, And I also can tell you that there's certain things that people don't like about me that's right out of here, and it's because they don't understand it. So one of the big things that people with my personality type are able to do is to pick up on little cues which go completely unnoticed by most other types, such as facial expression or stance or text. When people say something and other people look at it and go, he wasn't doing anything, and I'm like, oh, yeah, he was, I'm usually right about it. So then I look like a dick because I called the person out for being a dick, and everybody else didn't notice he was being a dick. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, like, I do shit, and either works or it doesn't, and then I just adapt and move on. That's very much this personality type. And that causes problems with being an employee. That causes problems with being a student. Basically, ESTPs are like, school is bullshit. That's why I feel that way. Because to me, it is. It doesn't work for me. And this is my point with that. It's not like we should do everything the way that Jack wants because his personality type is dominant in society and school sucks for him, so it should suck for everybody. No, what it actually says is, The format of school today does not work for this particular personality type. Well, guess the F what? There's a whole shitload of other personality types that's the same way. And there's a whole shitload that sort of does, and there's a whole shitload that sort of really, really does. And what that tells us, we cannot have a one-size-fits-all educational path for anybody or career path for anybody. The uh, there, There's different things they call these different personality types. The one I'm reading here calls ESTP the doer. But there's also a, a other places where you'll read descriptions of it. It's referred to as the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur. And so I, I did a good job as empl- an employee until I got bored with a job, and then I'd go somewhere else. That's why I have so many different careers and paths in my career. I get bored. I don't want to do I've learned everything I can from this job. I've made money at it. Somebody will now pay me more money to go learn more. I'm going to go do that. And eventually you have to end up as an entrepreneur. You end up as a You have to. You can't, and this is the thing. 
That's why I always say if being an employee works for you, then figure out how to do it in a great way because generally people that make good employees cannot be good entrepreneurs. And generally people that can be good entrepreneurs can't be good employees. You can, you can make it work if you have to, but you're generally not happy. So I thought it was an interesting thing. Now, this is really like a two-part question. I went five minutes on that, even though I thought it would be short. But I, I want everybody here that's never taken Myers-Briggs to do it, read about yourself. I think you'll learn a lot, and it'll help you plan your life. It doesn't mean you're locked in by it. And please read like five or six uh, um, different versions of the assessment of what it means. So you can get from one test the result, but then go and read – Different people have different opinions about what this means. There's there's some write-ups on ESTP that are very, very negative uh, because ESTPs don't value academia. Well, that's your opinion, all right? It's more about what it is and what that means for you and how you have to adapt. Okay, so now, non-aggression principle, also known as the NAP, is a principle that guides both anarchists and libertarians. Um, I think sometimes libertarians who have not yet crossed over to anarchy, don't see the incongruency with the non-aggression principle and a libertarian state that actually is a libertarian state. In other words, there's still some capability of a government to tax, maybe only through sales taxes or something like that, because it still violates the non-aggression principle. Because if you're going to say, uh, we're going to put a sales tax, all we're going to have is a sales tax. Really, really benign one, too. We're going to have a 5% national sales tax, and that's it. And that's all the money the government gets. It can't borrow money against future labor. It gets 5% national sales tax on all goods and services, and that's it, and it's done. And if it can't make it with that, it can't make it. Before I go on, let me be clear. While I still would want better, I would take that deal in a nanosecond. I wouldn't even think about it. Done. If I could push a button, I got a free state coin in front of me, copper free state coin. If I could push that like a button and that would happen and be phased in over 10 years, I would be gloriously happy for that. I think the nation would be so much better for that because so much oppression the government commits, it wouldn't be able to because it wouldn't have the money to do it. It would have to actually see to doing the shit that needs to be done rather than the shit that, that the powers that be want to be done. But it still violates the non-aggression principle. What if I don't want to charge a sales tax? What if I don't want to charge a 5% sales tax on my eggs and this magical loss as I have to? I'm going to tell you what I would do. I would do it, but what if I don't want to? What if I don't want to? What if I say I'm going to give myself a 5% advantage over other people in the market by not charging the sales tax? What do you think the state's going to do? Well, he's, he owes us the money. Whether I charge it or not, I owe it. That's how sales tax works in a state. Let's say I sell $1,000 worth of stuff, right, and there's an 8% sales tax in my state. Well, now I owe the state 80 bucks. And if I say, but I didn't charge it, they say, well, we don't give a shit. You were supposed to. Give us the 80 bucks. And if I don't have it, then they come after me. And they make me, they've now aggressed upon me. They've now aggressed upon me. So could you actually run a state as an anarcho-state or a truly pure libertarian state and follow the non-aggression principle? You could. You absolutely could. There's nothing that would preclude a, a state or collective group from collecting and earning revenue to be put back to work for the common good. 
They would just have to earn the revenue. They would have to earn the revenue. And, and how is this different than just, say, a company earning revenue? It's not much different, but it could be. If the people of a society got together and created a charter, that said there are certain things that we see as, instead of using the word maybe public works, common works, like roads, like bridges, like basic research, so that if something is researched and developed to a point where it can do good things, it's publicly available and anybody can use the research and there would be some funding for that, then they could do, they could charter that. And they could even charter a group of leaders that would be possibly elected. And those leaders would put forth ideas and what have you. And then they would say, we feel that members of this community who believe in what we're doing should make a contribution financially, materialistically, or labor-based to the system as a whole. But we're not going to force you to. And here are some ideas for what that would look like. It would be 5% of your income for the year. It would be 50 hours of community service work. You come down and provide your, your labor. Or it would be that since you have a farm, that you give away 5% of your food to the public concern, and then that is distributed to people according to their needs. But if you don't want to, you don't have to. And what people would say is, well, then nobody would. You know what I'll tell you? I would. I would. Last year, in deductible charity contributions, I did over $5,000. No one made me. And I did a hell of a lot more than that to places I couldn't actually take the deduction because I thought the need was greater and the cause was worthy. Who made me do that? Do you think, do you think if I didn't pay over $60,000 in total taxes last year, adding everything up, that I might have given more? Do you, but you wouldn't have given as much as you did. But how much more efficiently would it be used? Let's say that they gave me my sixty grand back, and I said, I had a pretty good year. I'll give twenty this year to, the, to, the, to this, this group of local leaders who we've elected that I believe are doing a good job. And check it out. Let's say they want to stay in office, and they, they've, they've rigged the elections. That's fine. You don't get my money now. Could it be done? Yeah. Of course it could. Why? If the ideas of government are so grand, why do they have to be enforced with a gun? Because the rich, rich, greedy people won't give like you would, Jack. The rich, greedy people are not paying jack diddly shit in taxes now. They never did and they never will. The end. They don't pay taxes. The majority of income tax is paid by companies making less than $10 million a year and by individuals making between $50,000 and $250,000 a year. And it's always, no matter what anybody ever tells you in a state like we have, that's the way it's going to be. You're not going to tax the rich. You can't do it. Because the rich write the laws, and even if it says the rich are going to be taxed, they're not going to pay it because they're going to structure it to avoid the tax in ways that you cannot. 
They'll put it into a corporation. They'll put the, we'll make them bring the corporation back. Donald Trump says he's going to make Apple. Donald Trump isn't going to do jack diddly shit, except in the words of Ted Cruz, throw a Trumper tantrum, right? And that's not an endorsement for Cruz, but it was a clever quip. I'll give him that, okay? This is not, it's, it's all a fantasy. Now, the, the non-aggression principle-based state for the time is also a fantasy. But do, do you really think, if the government said today, we will no longer tax income or property in any way, because it violates your right to not be aggressed upon when you've harmed nobody, but we'll list all of the services that government could provide, what they are and how they'll be done. And every year, as a member of the community, as a member of this place, we'll call it America, you can look, or every week, you can look at your income and dictate if any goes anywhere and at what percentage. So if you really believe in cause A, you can give your little piece, but 100% of it to that. That no one would do it? That it wouldn't happen at all? That there'd be no money to do anything? Now, we probably wouldn't have money to be bombing caves in the middle of Afghanistan, but we probably wouldn't have anybody from Afghanistan to worry about either. We probably wouldn't be bothering anybody. And you know how prosperous this country would be? Do you know how much money would come into this country because of that? And then everybody would have more money because more. when you have more coming in, then everybody has more. That's how it works. No matter what your piece is, it gets larger. A rising tide floats all boats. Could this be done like in the next five years? Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a realistic anarchist. Absolutely, positively not. Over a 10-year period. Maybe. Maybe. Could this type of implementation occur over a 20-year period and be successful if we wanted it done? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it would be almost impossible to do over that 20-year period because the people that you say are the biggest danger in an anarchy are the ones that want it the least. They're terrified of it. Because you take away the force of the state And you can't have a banking monopoly. You can't, it doesn't work. You can't have an energy monopoly. It doesn't work. You can't have a communications monopoly. You can't have any monopolies without a state. It's impossible. Because the regulations that are supposedly preventing monopolies are just creating three or four companies that dominate that entire sector that are the monopoly. Do you really care if it's a monopoly of A or a monopoly of A, B, C, and D? Do you think the airlines really aren't a monopoly? Do you think that the phone companies really aren't a monopoly? Do you think the cable companies really aren't a monopoly just because there's a few of them? When I used to work for Sage Telecom, I always asked, why hasn't Bell bought us yet? Why, why, why hasn't, why haven't they, you know, AT&T basically, like, we're the last stand. And the response was because they could tell the government they're not a monopoly. We have a half a million customers nationwide. We compete with them. If they buy us, they're a monopoly. They'll get broken up. That's how stupid this stuff is. Anyway, those are my thoughts on that. That could have been a whole little mini show, but I'd like to hear from you. How would you structure a state, an actual country, but follow the non-aggression principle? I believe it can be done. 
I'm not saying it will be done. I believe it could be done. Hey, Jack. This is John from Illinois. I have a gun question. I'm right-handed but left-eyed. Should I try to trick myself into shooting with my right eye or train myself to use my gun with my left hand? Uh, any thoughts would be much appreciated. Thank you for the show. Bye. You know, as I was listening to the gun question, it just dawned on me that I, I used the wrong word in answering the question with yes, it could work. It, the word in the last question was not a state could exist without force or a state could exist under the non-aggression principle. It is that a nation could exist. A nation and a state are not the same thing. A nation is bound by common ideals, etc. A state actually is an apparatus of force. So we could have a, a forceless nation, a, a nation that abided by the non-aggression principle, but not a state. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and answer this next question, the, the eye-dominance issue. I'm going to give you my opinion, and it is the opinion shared by every BRM instructor I ever met in the United States Army and every rifle instructor I ever met out of the Marine Corps. And I, I share their opinion of this. Shoot left-handed if you're left-eye dominant. The end. Done. And here's why. You cannot change your eyes. You can train yourself to do things with your opposite hand actually relatively quickly. And I'm going to give you a few drills for doing that here in just a second. Now, I'm going to give you the exception. Everybody has a dominant eye. That is it. That is the end. Infinity. Very few people that are left-eye dominant and right-handed or right-eye dominant and left-handed have 20-20 vision in both eyes. Very few people. If you have 20-20 vision, uncorrected 20-20 vision, because even when you get corrected to 20-20, it's not the same. If you have uncorrected 20-20 vision in both eyes, by closing your, your, your dominant eye and using your dominant side, you can probably shoot very, very effectively, and train yourself to do that, okay? I don't like that. That's not my suggestion, but it's the one, it depends in that. If you don't have perfect vision, and you have a dominant eye that is opposite your dominant hand, it is going to be all but impossible for you to become as good a marksman or shooter as, as you have the potential to become by, sh by shooting with the dominant hand and the non-dominant eye. Almost impossible. Almost impossible. I saw this with my wife. My wife is left-eye dominant, and she did not want to shoot left-handed because it felt funny. But that's just about learning form with the offhand. And once she got that, man, you give that lady a, a semi-auto 22 and set some beer bottles up for her at 25 and 50 yards, and there's glass flying everywhere. Quick. You know, I, what I'll do is I'll shoot against her with a bolt, and I give her a semi-auto, and she just tears me up. All right? So that's, that's my opinion. And then I'm now I want to, what I want to do is I want to give you some, some dexterity things to help train dexterity into your offhand. Because I just gave you the answer every professional instructor would give you, every military instructor would give you. But generally, then it's like you just do it and you just shut up and be a big boy and put your big boy pants on and shoot left handed until you get that shit right. But there's the, it, the shooting is not just having the, the rifle or the shotgun in a certain form and pulling the trigger. Shooting has all these little things that are done, tactical things that are done with the, the fingers, pressures and things like that. And in general, if you just said, well, how big a deal is that? 
Okay, fine. If you ever done mechanical work and you have to put a bolt on a nut that's not like right in front of you, and you have to like put your hand underneath something and turn it with just your fingertips, it tried doing that shit with your left hand. And sometimes you have to because of the angle. You can't really get your right hand in there, but you get your left. It's a lot harder. So here's one thing you can do to increase the dexterity in your left hand. Get a, and this is actually a great thing for everybody to do because having the ability to do things with both hands equally well or even just better in one hand, like improving it, like if your right hand's 50% better, to get to a point where your left hand can get to where it's only 20% less as good as your right. So take a, a piece of 2x4 and drill some holes into it and get some bolts. And take those bolts and, and put them through the holes and bang them in with a, with a hammer and then put a nut on each one of them to tie it on there. Do some different size ones. And that's your little training rig. And then get a, a handful of nuts that fit on those bolts, put them down, and take your, your, your hand and, and just thread them on. And thread them all on to the nuts and then thread them off. And do that for five minutes a day. Another thing you can do, old kids game, jacks, where you bounce the ball and pick up a jack, bounce the ball, pick up a jack. Get an old school set of jacks and, and try to do it with your off hand. And, and one more that's actually really, really effective. And you'll never mock people that can't throw worth a shit again. Get a coffee can, set it up by a tree or something, pick up a bucket full of rocks, step back to a distance you could easily, you know, consistently hit, throwing the rocks with your right hand, you hit the can, you hit the can, maybe you throw ten shots, you hit the can eight times, it's pretty consistent for throwing rocks at a can. Fill the bucket of rocks back up and go back there and throw with your, your offhand. Until you can consistently, you'll never get it to where you can zing it really the way you can with your right, but get to where you can at least consistently hit with it. And you actually start to develop better use of that offhand. I think it's a good thing for everybody, but I wouldn't necessarily say everybody should do it. It just is an interesting way to improve your capabilities. But if you have the off eye thing, it's in incredibly valuable to you. And it's much easier to train that than to retrain the pathways of the optic nerve to your brain, which is what you're trying to do. That's what you're trying to do. It's so much so that people think you have to close your non-firing eye. I never do. Now I'm practically blind, but no one in my family does. My grandfather used to say, open that eye. You, you, you see what you're killing with one eye and you kill it with the other. It's wider field of view. You need to know what the hell's going on, especially swinging a shotgun. Smack you in the head if you close your eye. Right, and and I have most of the men in my family have basically an astigmatism where the left eye is weaker, and where almost all of us are right right arm dominant as well. So it works out. But like my my uncle's left eye vision is way better than mine. He can see. He's probably like twenty twenty right eye, twenty forty left eye. Very minor astigmatism, but he shoots with both eyes open. But you can't do it the other way around. You can't flip over to left-handed if you're right-eye dominant and leave your right eye and shoot worth a damn. You have to close that, that right eye. But you can you can shoot fairly well with both eyes open if you're on your dominant eye because it's your dominant eye. That's why. So learn to shoot with your dominant eye, but learn to build dexterity, flexibility, capabilities into your, your hands so that you can actually functionally develop your form properly. And that's going to be your biggest challenge is to get good form with your offhand because it's going to feel unnatural. So do what I tell everybody to do with developing your form. 
Have someone stand back, video you, take pictures of you, and be hard on your form. Neck in the right position, etc. I have a very old set of videos I did on rifle form. I'll put into the show notes today. And a lot of people watch that video and said I'm being a dick in that video. Um, it's just the way that it is. There, there's a proper form for shooting a rifle. And a, a lot of people point out things like these tactical forms and stuff. I'm not showing you a tactical form. Showing you a sporting rifle form. There's, there are different forms for tactical shooting. Anyway, check that video out and, and work on the dexterity in your offhand. Hi, Jack. This is Ellie in California. And my question to you is, besides putting your money maybe not in the bank but in gold, silver, and, you know, food and, and whatever else, um, what can you do with it? And, you know, I've been leaving it in PayPal. And... And I'm not sure whether that's a good idea. I'm not sure whether... Right now, I actually feel it's safer than the bank. Um, believe it or not, I used to think it was the opposite. But now I feel like I'm okay with PayPal. At least I have an ATM card to PayPal, and I'm not sure they behave like a bank. So I was wondering if you knew that. Thank you. I, I guess the question is safe from what? Um one concern I guess people have with their money in the bank is if there's like a financial crisis and then there's a bank shutdown, you won't be able to get to your money. It's not the most like it's not something I lay awake at night thinking about and terrified about or whatever, but it's something I guess that could happen. It certainly has happened in the past. Um, honestly, we came pretty close to it happening in the 2008-2009 meltdown. We came breaths away from that. Uh, almost like you know the Cuban Missile Crisis for money uh, type of thing, but you have to ask yourself, given the methodology by which PayPal conducts transactions, do you not think that they're dependent on the banking system themselves? Even though the government effectively says PayPal is not a bank. In other words, where do you think PayPal's money is? I mean, <laughs> I want you to just think about that for a second. Where do you think PayPal keeps its money? And, and my my estimation, there there has to be a significant amount of cash reserves in a sort of sort of a banking system. They have to have a way to actually hold funds in reserve. I don't think they're actually holding the money in uh, PayPal limbo. I, I really don't know the answer to that question. But but my my instincts, I've never really been asked this, so I've never looked this deep into it. Mostly when people say about security and PayPal, they're worried about well, if somebody hacks your account. You know, and, and that's a case if somebody hacks your bank account, and there's pretty much the same things they can do with it. Uh, but I, I don't really know, but I would think that if you had a bank shut down, that PayPal might become really strapped for moving funds around pretty quickly. And if you think about the way people fund their PayPal accounts, they, they do so with credit cards or linking to a bank account. So, you know. Your money is there, but how do you spend it? How does it move to somebody else? I think there would be problems with that. The only place I can see where there might be an advantage within PayPal is that a bank requires is required to report all transactions to the government in amounts over $10,000. I cannot confirm or deny uh, anything on PayPal about that, but I can't confirm it. So it looks like there's nothing definitively that says that you know PayPal reports transactions in excess of ten thousand dollars to the government. If you move your ten, if you move ten thousand dollars out of PayPal to your bank account, of course that is a banking transaction on the other end, and they're going to report it as required. There's also certain things that you do inside a bank account that the banks would then generate what's called a suspicious activity report or SAR. 
In other words, it looks funny what you've done. You've you've structured things or something like that. Like you you did three deposits of, of you know thirty five hundred dollars. Why did you do it that way? That were you avoiding it? And and I don't think PayPal is anything approaching a SAR. So, but you wouldn't do anything in PayPal anyway that would look like structuring unless you were moving money out of a bank account. In which case, at that point, you still have the bank deal. So, I can only tell you what I do. I do not leave a lot of money in PayPal. Once my PayPal balance gets a certain amount, it goes to a checking account. And that checking account is for the business. And then I determine, are there any expenses that need to be paid not with PayPal, but from that checking account this month? And I'll leave money for that. And I'll also say, we're going to give to Caesar 30% of the money that ended up in there as a quarterly tax payment. And 70% of that money then either moves to my personal checking or my personal Uh, savings account, and that's what I do. And I don't sit around worried that you know the bank's going to go bust or whatever. Uh, and I don't certainly don't think you're going to get into a world where the banks of the world are going to go under, and PayPal's going to be okay. I, I really don't. And maybe that's a thing for John Pugliano to look at, but I, I really don't think that's the case. I think that you know if because here's the deal: the reason PayPal works the way that it does, and the reason it's relatively secure for saving your money is unlike Bitcoin, it is denominated in dollars. So you can put all your money into Bitcoin, and if Bitcoin takes a 20% hit next month, you've lost 20% of your value, even though you still have the same number of Bitcoins. It's, 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 a, it's a fluid thing. It's not stable. Though over time, it should work itself out, and you should be pretty cool. But I'm not saying go throw all your money in Bitcoin either. All right, um, But you can certainly put some of your money into Bitcoin. That, that's another way to do it. Um, I, I am a big believer in cash. There's certain times where you do certain things with money and cash is the result. And when that happens, uh, I generally don't put cash in the bank. I put cash into secure locations. It's cash. But it's still denominated in dollars. But it's cash, right? So I'm a big believer in the multiple bucket theory. So you got some Bitcoin, you got some silver, you got some gold, you got some money. I never, and the other, well, the other side of that is I never wipe my PayPal account to zero. Just, I mean, I've got a PayPal debit card. Now, How much money? So if, let's say you are an entrepreneur and all of your money that you receive comes either as cash or PayPal and you basically just want to hold the money in PayPal but you're not making a lot of money either. Like you're, you're, you're using PayPal the way most people use a checking account, a regular bank account. You've, you've got maybe $5,000 in there at most at any one time. Eh. Yeah, so, but I mean, if you're if you're saving money and you're sitting there with like fifty grand in your PayPal account or more, man, I I feel nervous about that. I can't even completely articulate why, right? Except that I, I will tell you this: if there was a failure of the banking system, it caused a failure of PayPal. Your money's not insured. Your money in the banking system is. But I think if it was that big a failure, there's going to be no FDIC in the world that's going to bail that out. So. I, I don't know. It's it's like there's this illusion of safety, and if but if somebody breaks and hacks into your PayPal account and sends money to some account and then to another account and to another account and ping pongs it and gets it out as cash, it, you're you're in a pretty hard way to get your money back. Where if somebody hacks your bank account, there's generally more recourse. So I don't know, man. I. I cannot condone keeping large amounts of volumes of cash in PayPal.
I, I think you're overall with risk everywhere. There's less risk in a bank than in PayPal. Um, but keep some money in cash. I, I'll, I'll leave that one at that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Richard in Wisconsin. In episode 1716, I'm not sure if this is what you meant by it, but you said you wanted to hear our comment uh, on how, not necessarily the show, but how in our journey we've changed our opinions drastically. I myself would have classified myself as a pretty hardcore, fiscally conservative neocon early on in my life, and I was uh, throughout my journey until I attended a libertarian thing at my university, uh, where they kind of went over the basics of it, I was still kind of against it. There are four drugs and prostitution, but I didn't quite realize that you can be against certain things but not want to uh, force other people if it's not actually harming you if they do certain things, that sort of stuff. And now I have journeyed from that to being a anti-war um, anarchist, really, in, in any other word. And... Uh, does have to do, especially my final step from uh, libertarian minarchism to anarchism, has to do with the critical thinking uh, that uh, you've so pushed in this show. Uh, without it, uh, I may have even still been a neocon and probably a guy that may not have been for Trump, but would not be extremely frightened by a presidency uh, from a guy like that. So anyways, I really appreciate uh, all that you've done throughout the years and um, have pushed all of us towards thinking a little bit more critically about things that we see in the world around us. So thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. Bye. Well, I, I played that call for three reasons. The first is when people really transform their thinking or their lifestyle and share it, I love to play that for others in the audience. Even if you would not end up following this gentleman's path and maybe your transformation is less political ideology and more about um, physical activity, let's say, you know, starting a business or whatever, whatever, you know, getting out of debt, all those other things. Because one doesn't have to be an anarchist to get out of debt, start a business, develop alternate income streams, become less, you know, uh, less for interfering with other people's lives, more for not interfering with other people's lives, etc. So, and everybody's on their own step along the path with that. They, see, there's a, there's a great deal of fear that comes with letting go of controlling other people. And that's kind of the next thing that I wanted to talk about. Like, so, you know, when, when this gentleman first encountered libertarians, he said they're for prostitution and drug use. Well, they're not. Being a libertarian doesn't mean you're for any behavior at all. Or being an anarchist doesn't mean you're for any behavior at all. What you are against is certain behaviors. And so it's not about being, I think prostitution should be a wonderful thing. Uh, and we should just all look at it as a great thing and we should all be happy about it. And no. Right? I mean, but on that issue, because that's one, like, when I talk about libertarianism and anarchism a lot of times, I'll bring up things like marijuana. Because to me it's one of the most atrocious things in the world that we've made the, the possession or consumption of a plant illegal. There, there is no liberty no matter what you think about marijuana as a thing, but I think maybe prostitution actually can make this case even better given current United States law. Okay, just to really drive this home, if a man goes to a woman and pays her money to have sex with him, it is considered prostitution and it is illegal. 
and they can both get in trouble with the law through the force of the state for doing so. Now, that is not a ethical judgment on the, the practice of prostitution or sex outside of marriage or any of those things. It just is what it is. That's the truth. Okay. But if a guy with a camera pays both the man and the woman to have sex with each other, videos the act, puts it on the internet, and sells access to it for more money, it's legal, as long as they're both adults. Okay, I just have to point that out, the absolute hypocrisy of that. And I know there's people that want to make porn illegal, and I, I really wish you'd find better things to do with your energy and your time. Again, that's not a sanctioning of porn. It's just a case that it is there, and the world hasn't ended because of it. There's not, you know, porn on on, on every the side of every billboard because it's it's legal, right? It just it is a thing, and prohibiting it would just actually make it more in demand, create a black market for it, etc. And then there'd be a lot more abuses within that industry, kind of like there is a prostitution. But it, it's complete hypocrisy, more so than beer versus marijuana. That Both parties in the act can be paid, and it's legal, and it can then be sold to make more money, where two individuals conducting a private transaction choose to engage in sex, and it's illegal because one paid for it. Right? Again, it's not an ethical judgment. It's just, it, it doesn't make sense. Let's say a guy goes out to a bar, meets a pretty woman, he has a nice car, he has some money, they spend a night on the town, they choose to have sex at the end of the night, and it's just a one-time thing, and they go on about their way. Now, again, you leave a morality out of it, it's completely legal. So she gained whatever she wanted to gain out of the experience, he gained whatever he gained, wanted to gain out of the experience, it's done. So what people would then point out is, but Jack, look at all the abuses in prostitution. The way pimps, you know, beat up women and how they're sold and traded and, and abused and, you know, forced to do these things. Yeah, because it's illegal. Because it's illegal. Now, I'm not saying none of those things would happen, but if, 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 if prostitution was perfectly legal and there was no reason for women to walk the streets, there was, a, you know, or, or God, there's male prostitutes too, right? The, 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 these people that did this activity just had a website and people went point click buy. They got reviews just like eBay, so you knew that the picture was the picture was really the person that showed up. There, there'd be a lot less of those abuses. And so, again, I'm not saying it would be a good thing. I'm saying it might be less bad. But, but the big thing here with, with the libertarian position isn't that it's a good thing. It's that, there, that there's no inherent right of a third party to interfere with two people that want to engage in an activity that, by the way, is perfectly legal as long as money's not exchanged. You know, we, we've at least gotten past the prudishness of two people having sex without married, throw them in jail. We, we're not there anymore, right? But but if one gains something from it other than the activity itself, well, well now it's a problem, unless they're being paid to be actors in a movie, doing things that most, that, you know, there's some really, really bad shit that goes on there too, right? And that's okay legally, not morally. You see how it's legal, but it can still be immoral? And you can still be okay with the fact that it's legal, even though you're saying it's immoral and therefore it shouldn't be? Got that? That's what I'm saying, right? I am certainly not endorsing the practice of, uh, uh, of prostitution. I, I think it's, it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. I really do. I mean that. You know, Because I can tell you this. In my past, even though I don't smoke marijuana now, I smoked some marijuana in my past. 
Not a lot, but there were times when I smoked quite a bit for a while. So when I say I don't use marijuana, I don't think it's really the greatest idea for you to use either, but I don't think it should be legal, I have a little bit of a credibility out there, but I've never paid a woman for sex. Just no way. And, and I, I really think it's a bad idea. But I don't want to use my opinion of that to use force on other people because they've chosen to do something I don't want them to do. That's the actual position libertarians and anarchists have on many of these activities. Now, some of them actually engage in those activities. But there's also going to be other activities that they don't engage in, they think are wrong, but they don't want a law to prevent other people from doing this and also not hurting anybody else. And people say, well, what about, like, so prostitutes get beaten. Well, that that is, you've harmed somebody. Now, the non-aggression principle no longer applies to you because you've harmed somebody against their will. The last thing, though, and this might be the most important part of this segment, he said, I would have classified myself as a fiscally conservative, that word he probably would have used in the past, neocon. Neocon. He probably was a neocon. I have to say that when I was a Republican, and we'd be going all the way back to the mid-90s before I discovered libertarianism, when I was a Republican, I was probably a neocon too. I think the, the, the people I supported actively by voting for them and telling other people to vote for them when I was part of the cog in the works and just basically a dumbass drone like most Americans are, like I really thought it mattered to argue about whether, you know, uh, like, like Dole was better than Clinton to, to date it, right? <laughs> God, I was dumb. Now, see, if I said to somebody else, you're dumb for that, they'd be offended by it. If I said you're a neocon, they'd be offended by it. If I said you're a statist, they'd be offended by it. Well, I was a neocon statist behaving stupidly when I was doing these things. But if you want your ideas listened to by people that are still where you are, it's okay to call yourself a dumb neocon, right? Or a, or, or a big government socialist statist, if that was the side you were on. Don't call those people that when you're trying to talk to them. They won't listen to you. And what the, I, I would venture if the caller called back, had someone referred to him as a neocon, when he was a neocon, he would have felt that it was a slur, and many of the attributes you would have been assigning to him, he didn't really have. He was just in a system and didn't know there was another option. Couldn't conceive of another option. And, and here's the big thing. Moving from, like, Democrat progressive or conservative Republican to libertarian is really easy. It, it, psychologically, if you know what libertarianism is, it's actually a big, easy thing to do. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't know this was here my whole life. I always thought libertarians were dun, 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 anarchists. They're actually for a minimal government to see to these basic needs, and that's okay. And now, yes, I can see the clear path to non-intervention with other people. And trust me, it's a much better form of government than what we have now. Going to anarchy is scary as shit for that long. If you actually go there, it takes that long to get over it because, because that's, that's how you get over it. Is you actually realize, okay, all the people I'm afraid of in an anarchy don't want an anarchy and they're never going to be part of one anyway. Huh. How does that work? Oh, I control my own life. And this is an ethical philosophy less than a political philosophy. See, once I realized what being an anarchist was, I, I realized I always was one. 
I just didn't have the words for it or the understanding of it or know what it was all about. And that ethically and morally, I can't be anything else now. I can't be. Because I fundamentally believe to interfere with the life of another individual against their will at a time when their actions are harming no one or no one other than themselves and to use force to impose my will for their life upon them is to live for another man and that is something I cannot do. You, I, I believe people fundamentally have every right to lay down their life for another man but not to impose how to live on another man. If one wanted to risk their life to save the life of another, there is nothing more gallant and noble. There's nothing. There's no greater gift one could give to another person than to risk their own life and safety to help another. But if you think about that, I think more, more, more people that are willing to do that than we give credit to, especially if there's any chance of success. There's a difference between, here comes a car, I could get hit, but I think I can get you out of the way in time, and here's a grenade that came over, I could take cover and let everybody fear, go for themselves, but I'll throw myself on it. You know you're going to die. You know, it's, a, it's a fatalistic move. There, there's no chance. And it's a very rare person that will do that. But the person that will risk, make a calculated risk, I got a 50-50 chance, but I could probably save this guy, That, that's noble as shit. That's gallant as shit. And in some ways, it's more intelligent than the, the, the alternative. But the person that can actually do that, I would ask you, if you feel like you're that person, then ask yourself, since I would be willing to risk my life to preserve another's life if they were in danger, should I not also marry up that ethic, that ethos, with the concept that that person should be free to do with that life as they choose, so long as they don't harm me or another. And once you, once you make that connection, your mind changes. And you, you might wonder, is if you've listened to the show over the years, how I've become a much more peaceful person in, in, in like the last year, in two years. Like less, ah, Jack, Jack Ransom. Because once you get there, It is a peaceful thing. It, 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 is, it is almost a spiritual-like experience. Because what you actually learn to do is let go. Detachment, as you learn in, in Buddhist theology. right? You become detached from things that you never controlled anyway. So if you're attached to something that you have no control over, what does that mean? That means that that thing, that concept, that idea, that thought, that action by another that you have no control over at all is controlling you. Because even though you think, oh, well, it's illegal to do this thing that I find to be wrong. So the police will lock them up and put them away, etc. It still happens. It still happens. It still happens. And more people get away with it than end up in prison for it. And the people that do end up in prison for it, we destroy their lives and they become an extreme drain on society. And, and all of those things consume people. And they go sit in churches or political rallies or gossip sessions and talk about how bad everybody else is. But when you cross that bridge, you start saying to yourself, what can I do that is positive to the things that I think should be? And you worry less about what others think. There's a, a, a proverb from Lotzu, and it is, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. 
But there's something unsaid there. The majority of the people who are complaining about how fast another person is moving or the manner in which they travel are generally people who haven't taken a single step. They're sitting in a chair on the sidelines complaining about what others are doing wrong rather than demonstrating what to do right. And once you realize that using force on others to make them behave the way you want to is wrong, and you, you then say, well, if it's wrong, I can't do it. And then there's like this, you realize like 80% of the shit that was tying up your mind in life was wasted energy. You, 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 you were worried about controlling people you could never control anyway. And that, that concept was actually controlling you, and then it just goes away. It's not there anymore. Holy shit. What do I do with all this time and energy? Maybe I should start doing all the shit I said other people should have been doing all along. Maybe instead of worrying about that it's, that it's illegal to, to, to not use drugs, I should live this really awesome life drug-free and prove that that's the reality. Or maybe instead, I, I sh you know, if I'm a guy that uses drugs, say, hey, look, I use drugs, and now I don't have to hide. By the way, look at my life. Here's how I effectively use drugs in my life. And then let people decide for themselves. Because last thing on this before I move on, there's a, a documentary called Super High Me where this, com this comedian that smoked pot kind of recreationally performed an experiment. He did 30 days with no marijuana and 30 days smoking marijuana every day and then took cognitive tests and he actually did better when he was smoking marijuana. Does that mean that it's good to smoke marijuana and good for your cognitive function? No, it meant for him under those specific circumstances, that it worked out that way. When I told this to my school teacher, um, sister-in-law, she said, we just won't tell the kids that. Let you draw your own conclusions. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Uh, you mentioned carbonite, and I just wanted to give uh, a possible another option for people who budget may be limited. Amazon recently released for like $69 a year unlimited storage on their cloud for like backing up um it takes a long time to upload uh, one terabyte of data but for people who are just looking to have something cheap um plus when you connect with like, amazon prime you get two-day free shipping on a lot of things you get all those streaming movies um but uh so it's $69 is what it was when I signed up for a year of unlimited storage on Amazon. That's, that's another great option. It's, it's certainly affordable. And uh, I guess my question would be, does the system have enough intelligence that once you've backed up, let's say you had a half a terabyte on a hard drive and you, you, you triggered a backup and all your data uploaded, it takes a long time, so what, do it? Do it when you're on vacation or something, you know. You see, God, all, when you when you go to do it again, does it does it recognize? Okay, 95% of this shit is here, and only this other five percent needs to actually be added to it because services like Carbonite do that. So if that's the case, then the the the, the, the cost and time is really not that big a deal. Um, I checked my Prime account just to see, like, okay, does that getting you have to buy that separately, and you do. But if you have um, Prime, if you're just an Amazon Prime customer, and if you buy stuff on Amazon and you're not, I just think it's foolish. Um, at 100 bucks a year, uh, if you if you regularly purchase items instead of going to the store from from Amazon that are on Prime, the the shipping pays it back so so beautifully. Um, especially when you're buying small dollar items, like I bought a 10 pack of yeast for 6.99, and uh, 
and and it was on Amazon Prime. So I got yeast for less than a dollar a packet for making my meads. And, and normally you can't. See, that's the thing about buying stuff online. It's the small ticket stuff that you just can't afford to buy. I can't afford to spend seven dollars in shipping on a seven dollar item, right? So and not everything on Prime is a good deal. Sometimes the, the the cost is built in there, and you could get it for less another way. But a lot of times it's really great. But one thing that does come with Prime um, is Prime Photos, which is unlimited photo storage on the cloud. So that's not all your data, but all your photos can be stored for free on Amazon if you have uh, Prime. Which even if like it's like I pretty much upload everything to Flickr, you know, and because I don't have any pictures that I'm worried about somebody getting their hands on like some celebrities and what shit. But um, so it's that's a spot for it. And then it's on. I have two computers. I have a Mac and I have a PC. And at least once every other day or so, I plug my iPhone into both of them, and and then they have a, a manual sync with the iPhone. And then I have iCloud, where all of the stuff goes there. And almost every photo I have now is on my phone. So that's another redundancy. But, you know, you can set that up. And another thing I didn't realize, and I'm going to have to check this out, like, is it on an app or something? Um, Prime Music, unlimited ad-free access to over a million songs from hundreds of playlists. Like like kind of like a Pandora type thing, and I pay right now like four ninety nine a month for Pandora, uh, the the, the ad free version of Pandora. So I want to check that out and see if that's maybe better. If it's more like Spotify or something, where you can pick your individual songs and make your own playlists and stuff like that, or if it's just like iTunes Radio where it's just like you pick something and they play stuff for you. So I just thought I'd throw that out there because I know a lot of you guys, because I and Stephen Harris recommend so much stuff on Amazon, have Amazon Prime accounts. Um, that there is those other things. There's some other cool stuff there. Uh, if you if you go to Amazon and go to uh, your account and then go down to your Prime, you'll see a list of all the benefits you have in Prime. I know that's not a survivally topic, but it is a make use of what you already have, which is a survival topic. So smart financial management is if you own something that already does what you need done, you don't go buy another thing to do that. You use what you already have. And there's so many times people do that with basic stuff like, I need a bookshelf. And there's like 20 things around the house that would be repurposed as a nice bookshelf. But we go buy a bookshelf. I just pick the bookshelf because it's in front of me. Well, in this case, if you're paying to back up photos, and that's all you want to back up, and you have Prime, you already have a way to back up photos. If you are paying for a premium music service like I am, if this does the same thing or good enough, you're paying twice for the same thing. That doesn't make sense. So that's financial management 101 there, even though it sounds like a tech tip. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack Donovan in the Portland, Oregon area. I've got a question about quail. Um, I know you're big into that right now, um, and for good reason. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me as well. Um, I've seen firsthand, as well as on YouTube, um, some of these operations with quail on homesteads, and they are definitely a fantastic little protein factory between the meat and the eggs. Um, it, it seems like an awesome little setup. And my question, though, is I know you're doing it a little bit differently than some other people, which which I I prefer your methodology. How are, how is that any different than what what's being done in like the factory farms where where the chickens are, you know, crammed together in these little cages and the pigs are just you know squished together in these little pens. For their whole lives, 
how is that any different? It, it doesn't seem to be any different to me, and I thought we were supposed to be, you know, better than that or, or attempting to become better than that. And when I see these little quail operations, I mean, they're fantastic, like I said, for what, what they give. Um, but what kind of lives do these birds really have? All right, Jack, thank you for everything you do. Love the show. Bye. Well, you know, I did the three-hour-plus Q&A session on quail keeping, and uh, I kind of covered this in the last answer with can it be sustainable, can it be regenerative, can it be, can it do good things for the earth? So I'm not really going to talk about it from that standpoint. And this gentleman actually made this call before he listened to that show, then listened to that show, and then called back in and said, hey, don't beat up on me for that question. I kind of get your opinion now. I understand it. I'm still not totally comfortable with it, but, you know, don't worry about it. Well, I am going to worry about it because it's a perfect perfectly fair and legitimate question because it's not asked accusationally. Like there were people, I was attacked on Facebook because you have quail in a cage, you're evil. Well, shut up, go away, piss off. You're one of those people that hasn't taken a step on the path and yet you sit in your chair and you complain about the way somebody else is walking it. So piss off and don't bother me. This is a legitimate concern. Like I want to be able to do things, but I also have moral dilemmas with doing them. So let's address this in a, in a logical way. There's no doubt in my mind that the way that, let's say, chickens are kept in confinement operations is a horrible way to keep chickens at the the level of, like, CAFO keeping, right? At the level of these huge farms. And let's discuss what what those conditions are like. Okay, first of all, the birds are constantly medicated in laying operations. Because if they don't, they die. And when they do them for, pol when they do them for meat... They say they're antibiotic-free chickens. What they do now is they actually inject antibiotic into the egg during incubation in a, in a massive dose that gets the bird old enough to end up being usable as meat in these conditions. They stand in their own shit. They are fed feed that they all have to compete for. They're kept so close to each other that they have to burn the top pointed part of the beak off to keep them from pecking the shit out of each other. Uh, they're not fed any any greens of any kind. They end up taking no, nothing really approaching a dust bath, um, and they die every day. There's there's death. There, there's videos of this one lady that used to farm for Tyson, and they won't buy from her anymore. She went out of business because she told the truth that every day for one chicken house, she would pull a front end loader up and fill the front end bucket on the front end loader twice a day in dead chickens. There is no possible way at this kind of scale that the keeper can go in and evaluate, okay, this bird's injured, this bird's not doing well, let's let's remove this bird from that situation or whatever. The, the, the sick and the weak just die. And they lay there dead and stinking while other animals peck at them as they're dying. There, there's no real oversight of the individual animal. It's, it's the quantity won't allow for it. The person that has six quail cages with eight quail in each cage you know, has, what, 48 birds. You walk in and you check everybody every day. You, you can observe whether or not this animal is in distress or stressed out or having problems. And you can either take corrective action, you can cull the animal so it doesn't remain there, you don't have a dead animal laying while other animals are crapping on top of it, walking on it and eating it, which chickens do eat each other, okay? You don't have a CAFO where a cow standing up to it, like, it's, it's what would be its elbows if it had arms instead of front legs, Right? It's elbows and cow shit. You, you don't have that. You, you don't have a pig in a cage that can't stand up 
which is how these sows are kept when piglets are suckling on them. They have the cow confined to the ground. It can't turn around. It can't turn around. These are not the conditions in a quail cage. It is still not my ideal. And as I've said before, I'm working very hard to create options for people that are better than that. From a little bit better to a lot better. But in the end, a quail is a small bird, not much bigger than a budgie. Maybe two to three times the size of a budgie, which is like a big parakeet. And people put parakeets and parrots and cockatiels in cages all the time. Nobody flips out. And those birds have some pretty good lives. I had a buddy who had a huge white cockatoo that lived in a, in a cage that would get to come out and walk, walk around and sit on your shoulder and play with you and would cuddle up in your freaking lap like a cat. And if you let that bird go, it would spend, with the door open, it still spend most of its time in its cage. There's a metaphor there for human beings. We do that too, and we shouldn't, but we're not birds. And that animal's kept as a pet, and, and, and most people that don't, most people, you know, PETA people and whatever have a problem with it, but most people don't. But I think the level of care given by people that keep, you know, let's say 20 to 100 quail, far exceeds, whether they're caged or not, the care that a commercial operation does of quail or chickens or pigs or anything. Because at that scale, you can do it. And, and you know, so my quail that are living in a cage right now are provided with free-choice calcium. They get a dust bath um, every third day. They get a dust bath. Because I have one dust thing that I move in the middle of the day. So in the morning it's in one cage. It goes to the next. The next morning the next. And like that. And it, it rotates around. So every third day they get a dust bath. They're fed greens. So we grow them like basically microgreens. And we feed them that. And I want to do better. But their life, to compare their life to you know a chicken that can barely move because it's surrounded by other chickens, standing in its own shit with its beak burned off, With, 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 you know, a, a 2% death rate on a daily basis for 38 days until it's picked up out of its own shit, trucked across the, you know, the, the county in a truck with shit all over it, and then eviscerated in a factory where it's dipped into chlorine poop soup. The, the, to compare those two is disingenuous. And so the commonality is that the animal's contained in a relatively small space. And that's a concern for me, too. But they're not the same thing. And most people that would say they are, are, are disingenuous. You know, they, they really are. Um, let's go ahead and take the last one of the day. Hey, Jack, it's Rick. Um, calling from Eastern PA, the King of Prussia Valley Forge area, to ask a question about having a home built on a wooded lot. So basically my question is, I know you get a lot of stuff like this, but I'm trying to find out how I can gather the right info, resources to, to find out how much it's going to cost to build a house from land that's just basically woods right now. I mean, it's in the suburbs. There's houses on the sides, but it's two and a half acres in a, in a really nice location that would be great for my wife and I. You know, we'd put us both at about 30 minute drive to work and um, it would get us on that path that we're, we're looking for. And it's in a nice enough area that we could establish a little like mini farm, mini orchard, permaculture orchard that I'm thinking about um, that we might be able to eventually one of us, t you know, quit our jobs and stay home. 
So I'm just trying to get the resources for, you know, clearing trees. Can I get money for that to try and save some cash? And just in general about, like, how I go about finding how much it's going to cost to build a house from scratch. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Um, there's, there's a crap ton of it depends in there. I mean, you could be buying a, a, a lot that has really young regrowth in it, like sub 20 years, and there might be almost no timber value in it. You could be buying something that's got, you know, 40 year old trees and some stands of, of oak or something that has significant timber value. The thing is, you probably would then want to actually keep the stuff that has the most timber value as overstory trees, and it would be, you know, the scrub stuff you want out. So, I mean, you, you, you got to find someone that, that does the kind of work that you need done to get estimates. So, let, let's separate it from clearing areas for orchards and things like that and building a house. So, there's, there's builders in your area. There's absolutely builders in your area, and they make a living building houses, so they're generally happy to quote a floor plan like this with basic you know, stuff is X hundred thousand dollars, and then here's options and customizations and things. So that's, that's something you get from a, you get a market price because building a four-bedroom house near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is significantly more expensive than building a four-bedroom house where I live, significantly more. Labor costs are higher. Everything's higher. You know, you got union labor versus down here, you got right to work. So you got to find that based on the market rate of building a house. There's a certain amount of prep work that has to go in. So then you have to determine what your utilities are and, and what the utility companies do and what utilities you'd be responsible for yourself. So is there water, sewer, phone, right? Phone, cable, uh, you know, and of those, what do you want where you're going to be putting this house? Then usually they're at the street side easement. And most of those utilities have a base fee to basically install. Some are, some don't. But that the no cost, you know, other than your typical hookup that you'd pay if the utility was there anyway, is, is like for X amount of feet. And then for every foot past that, so now I want to site my home differently and I've got to pay for an extra 100 feet of cable or, or, or electrical line or whatever. What's that going to cost? So you've got to get that from the utility company. So you find out who the utility providers are for the area, what, what's involved, and you get pricing from them. So you go to a builder for the home pricing, and you go to uh, a utility for the, the pricing on uh, utility installation. Those are your two big expenses. Site prep, generally speaking, your builders will be able to either do that too or direct you to a contractor that can. So then you say you have to – so this is all complicated when you don't actually own the property because you're putting all this time and energy into something that you don't actually own. But you can get basic estimates, so you have to then talk to a uh, you know, heavy equipment company or to the builder that you know, contracts that, well, what's it going to cost to clear a, a building site? So that, that's, basic, that's what anybody would have to do. If you were, you were building you know, uh, your, your typical uh, suburban home on a little bit bigger lot that happened to be wooded and it wasn't pre-developed for you, you'd have to get all that information anyway, and that's how you would do it. I mean, there's, there's no book that can tell you this answer. There's no website that can tell you this answer. You actually have to talk to the people that can do the work to get those answers. Now, clearing the rest of the property, it depends on how you're going to do it. When I went to Nick Ferguson's uh, workshop, he rented like a 7,500-pound mini excavator with a grabber on it. And, boy, you know, trees up to about your thigh 
in diameter, you could grub out around them and push them down and move them and you know buck them with a with a chainsaw to make them a little shorter, stack them, do whatever. And if you're willing to do that, then you could probably rent a machine like that. Again, you got to find market rates for three to four thousand a month. So thirty days of running a machine like that, if you have the time, and you can have you know wood that you can use for hoogles or you know use them as landscapers, create terraces, all kinds of things. Um, or you might have to pay somebody to just come in and do it. I don't know what it's going to cost, and there's no way to find out other than to find people that do the work or provide the services or provide the equipment to do it yourself with and price it. So that's how you do that, and it's 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 kind of daunting, but but realize there's something wonderful about free markets. People that provide services want you to engage them in those services. So they're really helpful at telling you how to do it and what it's going to cost. So you can get some pricing. And don't base your budget on, I think it'll be this much. You've got to get somebody. And this is how you get a number out of somebody. Listen, I'm not going to hold you to the number. I understand certain things can change. Ballpark it for me. Because I'm doing a rough estimate of whether or not I can buy this property or not. And, and and I'll be happy to give you a chance to bid on it when 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 I when and if I buy it. But just I, I need like is this a fifty thousand dollar job? Is this a five thousand dollar job? Right. And and the, if you've estimated that in your head it's about fifteen grand, say it that way. Because what the person's thinking is if I say too big a number, I'm gonna scare them away. And I don't want to say too low a number because there might be something here I'm not seeing. So when you give them a big spread, it says I'm not afraid of the number. I just want to know what it is. And they'll usually say yeah. This is, 12 to 20. I don't really know because of some things, right? This house, the, the house pricing is usually pretty easy because builders have, you know, even when they say they're custom builders, right? It's, well, there's these 20 houses and then you customize them as you want, but this is what we build, you know, or square, you know, cost of construction per square foot, that type of thing. So all those can be found out, but it takes legwork and you got to do it. And I, I would want to know those things before I made an offer on a piece of property. Now, I'm not done yet with what you need to know. Okay, so what I just heard is I am going to buy a piece of property near Valley Forge. I used to have a sales rep that lived right, like you could look into Valley Forge Park from his house. Their family was loaded in a Ron White voice, right? Lots of money. And it's a beautiful place to grow trees. It really is. It's a great climate. Pennsylvania, if it wasn't for the government there, has so much going for it as a person that grew up there. I, I do miss certain things about it. And uh, you could definitely grow a lot of fruit trees, berries, and stuff like that. Is there any interference from the other property owners in doing that? Is there a HOA or a POA in place? Are there regulations that will prohibit you from doing this? You need to know those answers, too. Because what I hear is, well, we want to put in an orchard on a couple acres and grow enough food for one of us to quit our jobs. Okay, that's a that's a tall order. That's a, if you're just going to do it with with like f with uh, you know, fruits and and things like that, that's a tall order. Replace an entire income with that. It can be a significant income, but to replace a full-time job, it's quite a bit. Okay? So generally speaking, the way that you would do that is you put in your orchard and you start doing something like pasturing animals or something in between them and you create multiple streams of income from a farm that's you know the, the way that you get and you also can make some money now so if we put in a bunch of trees and we start running you know a hundred chickens 
uh, in five cycles a year, run 500 birds, and we're selling those off, then we can make some money on those. You know, we can uh, gross sales, um, $10,000, $20 a bird, roughly. You know, so that's that's a little money along the way that helps fund. So now we're not paying it all out of pocket. We're not going in debt for it. We're starting to build a customer base, and we have something to sell this other stuff to. Um, you know, and we can start then figuring out other things we can do. Well, just knowing the area, I can see all kinds of shit storm being kicked up over it. You know, you're talking about you're not talking about going to the east of Lancaster or something like that, where there's still a lot of farms and stuff. And, and that's what people would say. Why aren't you out there in Lancaster, right? What are you doing here in our nice neighborhood? So if the, if the dream really is a homestead that produces an income from the land activity, then you need to be really sure that you're going to be able to do what you're going to want to do. And I'm not saying not to do it. And, and see, I don't. there's things I don't know. So I'm assuming certain things. Like if you live in that area, you work in the city. By the way, Philadelphia is the only other place other than New York where people just refer to it as the city. And expect you to know what the hell they're talking about, right? Because like, like a, a Philadelphian or a New Yorkian that is away from their city will talk about the city when they're sitting in the middle of Dallas and they don't mean Dallas, right? They're the only two places I know that do that. If you know somebody else that does that, tell me. But Philly and New York are the only places I know that do that, right? So if you're working in Philadelphia, you have a full-time job, I'm thinking you're going to be buying a house in that area. Your income's pretty decent, So I'm thinking you're going to replace 60, 70,000, 80 grand. That's a lot of apples. That's a lot, especially if it's not a value, if it's a straight sale, that's not a value added product. That's a lot of eggs, right? I, I, you can't do the volume to get there. But if what you're saying is, you know, if we made 20 grand off the house, that's enough based on the other person's income to be happy, then that's different. But, I mean, you're not going to, on a two-acre property like that, unless you're doing bio-intensive gardening, like a Jean-Martin 48 or something like that, I don't see you, you, you making that kind of coin on that small of an acreage. Or you're doing something really unique. But I don't see you doing it with an orchard. Now, an orchard-slash-nursery, we got some. We go in and we plant all these beautiful trees, We teach ourselves grafting. We put in some some seedling beds. We start growing our own rootstock. We start grafting trees, and we start selling grafted trees to that huge market just to your east. We can start making some money on that. We have some fruit sales. We've got and we've got all these different ways to bring a customer there and sell multiple things to them. You know, so there's there's ways to build a homestead business there. And if you will be left alone. If you will be left alone to do things the way it, you might, like, Jack, we don't give a damn about I don't want a chicken. Great. Okay, fine. Then you're not going to have a problem from that. But if you'll be left alone to do the things you want to do, it's actually a wonderful location. It's perfect. It's the urban rural fringe. Valley Forge is big money yuppies. And it's got its downside too, but that's, that's a, it's a big segment of the, lots of people that, that work in New York, or work in Philly, that have good jobs, that don't want to live in Philly, kind of move to that area. There's a huge mall there. There's a huge consumer base. And the, the Philadelphia proper itself is huge consumer base. And you got all those surrounding areas as you come up just out of Philly up to turn to 476 Pike, all of that stuff. There's there's a huge market there. It's, it's akin to what we have here. It's probably better, though. There's more money than what we have here. So you can have these niche products that people want, 
And as long as you can do on-farm sales or on-property on sales and things like that, then, you know, it works really good. There's probably, I haven't been in Philly in a long time, but I bet you there's a great farmer's market community around the Philadelphia area. You know, and you, so that's another outlet. So there's a lot you could do with it, but just make sure you can do it without somebody stepping on you. Because I'm going to close with an interesting song today. I, I got this email from a guy. They said this is a Canadian band that plays a song you've probably never heard before. Uh, but it would be good to end the show with. And I listen to the song and I'm like, I know that song. I've heard that song dozens of times. And I've heard it by multiple different people in multiple different versions of it. And indeed, the, the version he sent me is not the original version. It's a pretty old song, actually. And... Uh, The reason I heard it is my wife got hooked on the the, uh, the Netflix miniseries, Weeds. I think I watched about three episodes of it, and like one episode was kind of interesting. The second episode was like, yeah, maybe this is worth watching. And by the third one, I'm like, this is like Desperate Housewives with Marijuana or something. I can't watch this crap. But she would watch it, so I'd hear this song. It's called Little Boxes. And, uh, man, this is uh, this is the very problem we talk about every day, boys and girls. They're all made of ticky-tacky, and they all look just the same. This is, uh, well, take a listen. It's not the greatest piece of music, but man, if you want to talk about why our society is screwed up today, this song nails it. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes all the same. There's a pink one and a green one, and a blue one and a yellow one, and they're all made out of ticky-tacky, and they all look just the same. And the people in the houses all went to the university where they were put in boxes and they came out all the same. And there's doctors and lawyers and business executives and they're all made of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. And they all play on the golf course and drink There's a pink one and a 